You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. If you've been with us the last several weeks, you understand that we're in a sermon series in the book of James, and we're calling it, How's That Working? Because we've noticed that James, in his epistle, raises a lot of questions. Um, just like his brother Jesus did, taught through questions. As we come here to chapter 3, we see that all of the questions are about our words. But chapter 3 is really about relationships. So there's this link between our relationships and our words. And James knows that Jesus Christ wants to renew, to restore, and to transform our relationships. That's part of his plan for our lives. So let's give attention to the reading of James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. You find that on page 981. And if you are able, I would invite you to honor God's word by standing with me and reading aloud. James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For all of us make many mistakes. Anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is perfect, able to keep the whole body in check with a bridle. If we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships. Though they are so large that it takes strong winds to drive them, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue is placed among our members as a world of iniquity. It stains the whole body, sets on fire the cycle of nature, and is itself set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by the human species, but no one can tame the tongue, a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse those who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and brackish water? Can a fig tree, my brothers and sisters, yield olives or a grapevine figs? No more can salt water yield fresh. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. I want to speak this morning about the power of words, the problem of words, and the practice of worship. But I want to begin with an anecdote that maybe some of you saw. Last year, uh, Jimmy Fallon set up uh, an image of the baseball player Robinson Cano in New York City. 
Uh, if you know baseball, you know Robinson Cano because he's the all-star second baseman, played for the New York Yankees. Last year was, was traded, uh, uh, left New York to come to Seattle of all places. Uh, and the New Yorkers were not very happy about his leaving uh, Bronx uh, for, for us. And so uh, Jimmy Fallon knew that when uh, Cano came back to the Bronx to play his first game, that he would get a heavy dose of booing from New Yorkers. You know, the, the collective unhappiness of the city would issue forth in, uh, in booings. And so he said, well, I want to give the city a little bit of practice. So he set up a cardboard image on the sidewalk of Robinson Cano, and then they filmed people as they came by and were invited to boo this image. The, the, the cardboard two-dimensional image of Robinson Cano evokes and gives permission for all kinds of bad speaking, right? All kinds of booing. But as soon as Robinson Cano himself, the real baseball player, steps out, it changes the language. Isn't that interesting? The words begin to shift. I mean, one guy goes from mid-sentence to, I'll say, you stink, to, hey, Robbie, how you doing? Welcome back to New York. So good to see you. It gives them a hug and a handshake. And they, they do person after person, and that's inevitably the response. When they see the real Robinson Cano, the words change. They, they change from booing or cursing to words that bless. And there's connection and relationship and a hug. I want to focus today on verse 9. Let's look again at this verse. Let me read verse 9. With it, the tongue, we bless the Lord and Father. And with it, the tongue, we curse those who are made in the likeness, in the likeness of God. What I want to suggest to you that when people in our lives become real to us in the way that God sees them, it changes the language, it changes the words that we can use. It's as though James is saying, there's a way that you can speak when you don't know Jesus, but when you pay attention to Jesus and recognize him in the middle of the conversation, your words will shift. Let me talk first about the power of words. Those words have great power. This is reflected for us in the very language that James uses. He speaks of blessing and cursing, which is a way of talking about our words that suggests there's a kind of a, a sanctity to them. Blessing and cursing indicates that our words are somehow connected to a spiritual reality, a greater power that they can draw down the power of heaven or burp up the power of hell itself. Then he uses three analogies in verses 6 through 9, horses, ships, and fire. Horses, because horses have bridles in their mouths. If the mouth is obedient, the whole body will be obedient. This is the power of direction. Ships, because ships are guided by a little teeny rudder, so small and disproportionate to the size of the vessel. But, but they can navigate great vessels through great storms. And this is the power of destiny. And then fire, because it begins with something so very small, just a spark. But it will spread dramatically and overwhelm and consume all. This is the power of dissemination. Words have great power. When a man rose to speak on May 13, 1940, just over 75 years ago, Germany had invited, invaded France three days earlier. But Winston Churchill rose to the podium to give his first speech as prime minister, and he said, I have nothing to offer but blood, toil, tears, and sweat. But Winston Churchill also had words, didn't he? 
This man who had a childhood lisp through the sheer force of effort had learned to speak and to speak well. He wrote out every one of his speeches, every word he said. And it took him, by the way, an hour of preparation for every minute of speaking. You can't overstate the impact of his speeches in a time of great global darkness. Historians tell us that many in the world didn't think Britain could withstand the Nazis. Uh, And yet his words put this crisis in the context of a greater narrative in which Britain had been victorious in the past and in which somehow it seemed that victory might again be almost inevitable, certainly possible. John F. Kennedy said, in the dark days and darker nights when England stood alone, Winston Churchill mobilized the English language and sent it into battle. The Bible says death and life are in the power of the tongue. Words have power. And the way that you and I speak to one another really, really matters. Your words have the power to shape the life of a child. Your words have the power to welcome an outsider in Your words have the power to nurture a marriage. Your words have the power at work to forge partnerships, to encourage and deploy a co-worker with confidence. Your words have the power to sustain the weary, to confront injustice, to heal the broken, to introduce people. Your words have the power to introduce people to Jesus Christ. So indeed, they have the power to share hope. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. Two weeks ago, I was with my family at a baccalaureate service. We've been doing these uh, graduations. And there was a moment in the service, it was the passing of the peace, and a, a kind woman turned around in front of me, and he looked at us. My family was all standing there. We were dressed at our finest. And uh, she said, oh, what a beautiful family. I see some family resemblance here. I can tell you guys all belong to one another. And I said, and I kind of turned my head as profile a little bit, and I said, oh, you notice the pointy nose and the big chin, don't you? And it's trying to be tongue-in-cheek, and she laughed a little bit, and she turned around. But about 30 seconds later, she turned around, and she said to me, you shouldn't talk about your children that way. <laughs> she said, they are wonderful children, and you really shouldn't speak about them that way. And I, for the first time, had a tongue that was tied. I had no, I had no response for that. I turned bright red. But you know what? She was right. She was right. I sh- I, and I've used that line a lot, but I'm not going to use that again, uh, Lord willing. <laughs> What I was doing there is very much like what Jimmy Fallon was doing, as, as though I had taken a cardboard cutout of my family, and for whatever reason, I was standing in front of the people that I love the most, people who are in the likeness of God, James would say, people who have a family resemblance, not just to me, but to our Heavenly Father. And I was looking at them, and just in, in jest, but even in jest, I was saying, boo, boo. Those were my words to my children. This gets us to the problem of words. And the problem of words is that we don't feel in control of them. Sometimes we bless, sometimes we curse. James says, hey, it's hard to be perfect, even harder with your words. I appreciate his compassion at this point. And so he says in verse 8, no one can tame the tongue. No one can tame the tongue. Why? Why do we curse? Why do I curse when I really ought to bless someone? 
Well, I, 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 here, I'm going to be a little bit speculative here, but if you sat James down over a cup of coffee and you said, James, what's going on with this? Why are we not in control of our words? Here's what I think he would say to you. Vulnerability. Let me unpack that. There was a moment when that woman turned around that I felt a little bit vulnerable and I was uncomfortable with her kindness and the intimacy that it assumed. That's why I think I deflected her comment. But it's not just my experience that suggests vulnerability is at the core. Notice what James has to say about the different kinds of words that we use. If you look down later in the chapter, you'll see in verse 14, he describes the sort of words that destroy or eat away at relationship, the kinds of words that curse and do not bless. He says, uh, if you have bitter envy, selfish ambition, uh, if you're boastful or false to the truth, all of these words, it seems to me, are words that assert the self. They assert the self because it feels at risk. It feels insecure. It feels vulnerable. This is a counter-assertion that reflects vulnerability. This is like the story of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, in this beautiful garden, they eat the fruit that they shouldn't eat. And then all of a sudden, for the first time in all of creation, somebody feels vulnerable. And then the words shift, don't they? All of a sudden, God says, hey, what's up? And Adam says, it's her. And she says, it's the serpent. And they're covering up because they know for the rest of their lives, they're going to be an opportunity to defend one another in the midst of their insecurity by accusing the other of something. They're hiding, they're projecting, they're asserting their self. Envy, ambition, boasting, false to the truth. What are the words that heal a relationship? Here James helps us again in verse 17. Listen to these. These are very inviting to me. But the wisdom from above, he says, this word, these blessed words are as pure and then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. I would say these are words that don't assert the self. These are words that invite the other, invite the other. Let me just pause for a moment because I think at this point James is being so countercultural. Today in our culture, we think that words are for self expression and everything is a canvas and everyone is a content creator and we spend much of our time broadcasting our lives to express ourselves. I don't know necessarily that I need to know when you're brushing your teeth or what the leaves look like on your sidewalk, but that's what we do. Even more regrettably, when we uh, feel that we cannot leave any thought in our relationship or in our marriages unexpressed or any volatile emotion from burping up into articulation, then we really risk hurting relationships. But James is saying we're not in control of this. And the reason is we're not in control of our lives. We feel vulnerable. In fact, vulnerability is essential to the human condition at this point in in human history. We are vulnerable physically, emotionally, and like Adam and Eve, and in their tradition, even spiritually. All of us, all of us lack control over our words. Even those of us who are in church, there's a story of somebody who called the church office and they said, is the pastor there? And the uh, uh, receptionist said, no, the pastor's not here today. And the person who calls said, well, that's because he's probably out spreading lies somewhere. And the receptionist was not going to take the bait and collected himself and said, uh, no, this is because today's his day off. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, James is a believer in the power of words. They shape our relationship. 
James understands the problem of words. We can't control them. But there is hope. The tongue cannot be tamed, but it can be trained. It can be trained. I want you to look at this next picture. I just happened to notice this. Do you see anything interesting in the background of this photograph? <laughs> the word grace is there on a building. I have no idea whose, whose idea it was to shoot from that angle, but I can't believe that it was accidental. You see that? Grace. Here I want you to notice, finally, the practice of worship. I want to suggest to you that Jesus can train our tongues. Notice that James brings up worship in verse 9. He says, with our tongues, we bless the Lord. That's worship, blessing the Lord with our tongues. The Greek word there means it's a good word. We speak a good word about God, and that's what we do in worship. Now, the words that you have to speak to God are completely determined. I want you to hear this. Are completely determined by the words you think God would speak to you. I want you to imagine that God, that God walks into this room and speaks to you. What does God say to you? This is going to affect how you worship or what you say back to God. For most of us, we have the sneaking suspicion that God would boo us. That God would say, you stink, you've turned your back on me, you're no longer welcome here, you're cursed, I curse you, boo! Whether we admit it or not, that's what most of us feel in the depth of our being. We feel vulnerable before God. But that's not what God has to say. The good news of the gospel is that God entered time and space, took on flesh and blood in the person of his own son, Jesus Christ, to come and bless us. God himself has stepped out from behind the cardboard facade. He stepped out from behind all of our unsatisfactory images of who God is to, to, to reveal himself. Say, this is who I am. I'm here to bless you. I want you to know the real me. Who could read the Gospels? Who could read the pictures of Jesus that we have in the New Testament and not be compelled by this God? This is everything we know about God is revealed to us in Jesus Christ. He comes to us to invite us into his blessing. Jesus, the scriptures tell us, became a curse so that we might be blessed. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He has absorbed every curse that anyone would ever justifiably offer against you, against me. So that when God speaks to us, all he has left to do is to bless and to bless and to bless. This begins to shift our words. When we see Jesus as he really is, when he steps out into history from behind our images, it changes the way we'll speak, first of all, to him and then to one another. So Jesus can train our tongues through the practice of worship. That's why you're here in church today, just like Jimmy Fallon wanted to get New York City ready to, to boo in the stadium. You know, you and I are here to practice, to get ready for eternity, uh, when we will speak that good word of Jesus day in and day out. This is what worship is all about, and it trains us. So two things really happen when Jesus steps out. First of all, we get new words. Second of all, there's this new recognition. New words. Worship is a response to grace. And when we worship... What are our words? What do we say to Jesus today? We say things like, thank you. And we say things like, thank you. And we say things like, thank you. <laughs> you have saved my life. You have given your life for mine. So thank you. 
And I love you. Like I've never loved anyone else. I love you because of how you love me. And you know what? You're the greatest. You're supreme. Notice, by the way, how worship shifts us from self-expression to God-expression. And it doesn't just happen in this room. It happens every day of the week, every moment. We're invited to, to express who God is in our life, not who we are in our lives. It's very countercultural. But we get new words. We learn to speak differently when we worship. And then there's this new recognition. I love what Marilyn Robinson says. She says, worship is recognition. Isn't that true? Worship is recognition. It's waking up to, oh my gosh, that's who God is. I, 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 I've worshiped all my life. But in this moment, I can see it for the, as for the first time clearly. I see this likeness of God in Jesus Christ. He's the perfect image of the invisible God, the scriptures tell us. I see the family resemblance now that all human beings have to him. Do you see that? Notice, how could you, how could you worship God and then curse one who's made in, in his likeness? What James is saying, is not, he's not saying it's a bad idea. He's saying you can't even do it. When you really worship God and you see him and you recognize him as he really is, you start to recognize other people differently because you see the God-likeness in them. Now, it's not just that God steps out from behind the cardboard image. It's that your partner steps out from behind the cardboard image. And you no longer see them in two dimensions. Now you see them in three and you go, whoa, hey, welcome. And you want to shake their hand and you want to embrace them. Doesn't mean relationship is easy. Doesn't mean our words are easy. But we're training. We're training our tongues, aren't we? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his great book, Life Together, writes about what he calls the ministry of holding one's tongue. Did you know you have that ministry? It's part of every member of minister here at church. It's the ministry of holding your tongue. I call you to it. This is what he says. He, he says that it, it, it's certain that the spirit of self-justification can be overcome only by the spirit of grace. And our words can express this grace, this is my word, language, when we have received grace and when we recognize in our brother what Bonhoeffer calls the richness of God's creative glory. When I see that in you or my children. Bonhoeffer writes, God did not make this person as I would have made him. <laughs> he did not give him to me as a brother for me to dominate and control, but in order that I might find above him the creator. God does not will that I should fashion the other person according to the image that seems good to me, I can never know beforehand how God's image should appear in others. To me, the sight may seem strange, even ungodly, but God creates every man in the likeness of his son, the crucified. After all, even before that image, uh, even that image certainly looks strange and ungodly to me before I grasp it. They say that we should think before we speak. I think James would say we should worship before we speak. We should worship before we speak. I'd like to invite you to think about that person in your life that might be hard to bless. Maybe you have crossed words with somebody. Would you just take a moment and just picture them in a two-dimensional cardboard cutout in front of you? Just imagine that person or those persons right in front of you this morning. There's a photograph of them, life-size. And then I like, just to close your eyes, and before you say a word to them, just to imagine yourself worshiping. Just say something to Jesus. Have a good word for Jesus. And then I want you to look back at that image and imagine that person or those people stepping out in three dimension to embrace you. What do you want to say to them now? What can you say to them now because of Jesus? Lord Jesus, the mystery 
of your ways astounds us. That you'd come to be just like us in all ways except sin. That you would offer your life on the cross for the sins of humanity to absorb our curse so that even if we tried to curse another human being, the gravitational pull of your grace sucks it away from them and swallows it up in your son. Help us to recognize you. Help us to recognize one another. We love you, Jesus. Give us words that will help us express our love for those whom you love. And we pray that you'll get all the credit. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.